Hello there, dear listener, and thank you for tuning in to Season 3 of Rebel Chums. For the next little while, we're going to be a Harry Potter podcast, covering the film saga that quickly became a worldwide phenomenon. You can get in touch with us via Instagram, just search for Rebel Chums, or you can email us at rebelmail at wearerebelchums.com. That's rebelmail at wearerebelchums.com. And for our third season, Rebel Chums are now proudly sponsored by Lock to Hub, the debt recovery and fraud identification solution for local authorities in the UK. Lock to Hub is the most comprehensive data hub in the country, designed exclusively for local authorities to increase their revenues and improve their efficiency when tracing debtors and tackling fraud. For more information, please visit www.lockta.co.uk or you can find them on Twitter at Lock to Hub. Thank you. Now into the wizarding world. Hello and welcome along everybody to season 3 of Rebel Chums. In our first season we began by helping a newbie fall in love with Star Wars. For season 2 we had an empty seat at the table, but thankfully we were saved by a line of magnificent guests who visited to give their views on the famous films of Pixar Animation Studios. And now, for this third of seasons, and to give us something to do before Star Wars returns in December, you can probably tell where this is going because of the music, we're going to be covering the Harry Potter saga. That's right, soar at breakneck speeds atop your Nimbus 2001s to the nearest speaker system, crank up that flying car and head on over to all major podcast providers, or just comfortably chug along on the Hogwarts Express and slip on your favourite headphones. However you choose to listen to us, we're going to make sure that book loyalists and film fans are equally serviced and respected across these next eight episodes. And joining me for them are two of the finest beaters, sorry, sorry, co-hosts, to ever sit near a microphone. I should have known that you would be here, Jake and Andy. <laughs> Hi! <laughs> I'm sorry, Rob, I just can't get over the fact that you just called us two beaters. <laughs> well, uh, peeps have got to know their Quidditch positions. That, that's very true. That's very true. Ah, uh, and if we and if Rob, if you were a Quidditch position, you'd be a keeper. Hmm. Sorry, I was taking a drink at the same time as I was reacting to that. So, ah. Okay, that's the kind of content we want, not Jake's filth. Hey, he said it. (laughs) It was off air, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Oh, was it? Ah, I was in on air mode. Never mind. (laughs) Um, So, I guess everybody knows what we're doing. It's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone for our American listeners, or international listeners, or wherever it was called, uh, Sorcerer's Stone. Um, So, this was released a very long time ago now. And not that long ago. I mean, not as long ago as Star Wars. No, no. Um, and it is at least implied that it takes place in the UK as opposed to a, a galaxy, you know, far, far away. Yeah. I, uh, God, it, it does Most feel like a long set time in ago, Scotland, though. so it might as well be a galaxy far, far away. That's true. It is set in the farthest reaches of Scotland. Um, so this was released in, can you believe it, November 2001. I can't believe this was nearly 20 years ago. It's crazy. <laughs> oh. um, directed by Chris Columbus, screenplay by Steve Cloves, and of course it's based on the novel of the same name by uh, J.K. Rowling. So, How I was this was... a book? 
Uh, unbelievably, you know. Um, <laughs> so I was seven when this film came out, and I'm 25 now. Oh, my word. And I think I went <coughs> to watch this in the cinemas because I had the books read to me. I had the first four books, five books read to me, and then I just I read the rest by myself. But, like... I don't know, this was just such a long time ago now that I can't... The only thing I can remember is that I watched this a lot at home. Yeah. This and The Chamber of Secrets, I watched it so much, and I didn't stop watching it until the VHS tape bust. Yeah, I kind of know this film off by heart, and I've not watched it for about three years, so I was excited to get back into this and, you know, see how I felt about it now that I got... Because the last time I watched this... I didn't go to the cinema twice a week, and I've been to the cinema twice a week for two and a half years in between that time. So my standards for films have changed. And now I've come to this, not only is it drenched in nostalgia, but it's also now slightly affected by eyes that are just better at watching films. I I pay more attention. I like to think that I know things that I didn't two and a half years ago. So it was nice to look at this with as fresh eyes as I possibly could, considering I've seen this about 90 to 100 times. That's the struggle I have with it, to be honest. I mean, I mean, on my part, I I mean, I watched this just as much as you did, Rob. I watched this a hell of a lot. Um, I mean, I had never read any of the books at the time. I, I saw this um, when I was nine years old, just having to do the maths. I was nine years old when this came out. And I immediately read all of the books that were available at the time after that. And I, I must say, I am very, very much a book purist. And that's probably the role I'm going to be taking most weeks while we do this. Okay. But um, I did absolutely adore basically almost all of the films. Um, Philosopher's Stone I've watched about a million times. And I'm sure Jake will say the same when we come to him, that we basically know every line of this film off by heart. It's just like ingrained into our souls and it's very very hard for me to watch this critically not even out of a sense of nostalgia but out of a sense of like i just find to find it really hard to look at it with any kind of fresh eyes because Mm. there's just like nothing new that i would get from this now like i've seen it so many times that it's really really hard to actually analyze it critically um not helped by the fact that i don't really think this is a movie for adults i think this is basically just for kids this film but we'll come back to that but it's it's this is going to be an interesting discussion for me this because this is probably one of those films that is just going to be forever a film for me as a kid really um and it's hard to see it any other way jake well, what about you ah uh, well it seems that i'm the only child that read this book before i watched it on film. <laughs> no no i did so well, I, think, well, I, think... I mean i had it read to me but you know uh, same thing same thing yeah yeah um yeah i mean i am also more of a book purist i mean it's it's interesting we say this film came out in 2001. I literally cannot remember a time where the Harry Potter, even as a film series, doesn't exist. And I don't... Like, I have memories of before I was six, which is when this film came out. Particularly of having this book read to me slash reading this book myself at that time. Um, so, you know, I, I know of a world before the Harry Potter films. So I think it's probably just an amalgamation of the books and the films in my mind that makes it feel like these films have existed practically since I was born, because I don't remember a world without Harry Potter. Um, and, ergo, I don't really remember a world without the Harry Potter films, because, in my mind, they're almost one and the same. Um, even though, 
the books are obviously, um, I, I would say vastly better, but they're not really vastly better. They're just very different um, and do very different things to what the films do. Uh, but, you know, asking someone in the mid-twenties to choose between Harry Potter books and a film, you're always going to get the answer books. Because yeah. this is basically a series that our entire generation was like grew up on in terms of reading like the only pe- reason people our age read books as kids is because of harry potter so pretty much everyone our age with maybe the exception of rob are going to say that they would prefer the books over the films yeah i would i would say like probably for almost everyone of our generation like one of the biggest reading achievements as a child was when they got through goblet of fire at 636 <laughs> pages when you managed to get through like a door stopper at that age like yeah it, i think Basically, everybody these days looks back on the books with so much more nostalgia. But the films mean so much to us all as well as mm. millennials. It's like it's it's like our Star Wars, basically. As much as I love Star Wars, like Harry Potter is our big shared memory, really, isn't it? I do I do think mm. that is partly because of the books and the films are basically fundamentally tied together. Like you yeah. can't it it feels impossible to have one without the other nowadays because they are basically the same. Mm. In terms of like the universe they encompass, the books and the films. Well, J.K. Rowling is now writing the films, so yeah, the line is very much blurred these days. Yes, and the films have taken you know somewhat of a dive since that started. Yeah, and the films know, basically um, are books. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we're getting sidetracked. Um, yeah. Anyway, just yes. my little relationship with the books. Um, I had them read to, like I say, I had them read up, read to me up until maybe Goblet of Fire, Order of the, Order of the Phoenix. I definitely remember reading Half-Blood Prince by myself, and I definitely remember reading The Deathly Hallows by myself, because uh, the copy of The Deathly Hallows I had had one of the Horcruxes on it, and it wasn't the usual... Oh, it was the adult version. Yeah, it wasn't the uh, the Bloomsbury um, illustrated covers like all the other ones. Um, oh, you're one of those people who had to read the adult cover one. <laughs> no, no, I, well, maybe. I don't know. I was only 13, 14 when that book came out, but... Um, Anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think the books are bad or anything like that. It's just that I had them read to me and then I got really attached to the films and then I couldn't get the films out of my head when I read all the books through for a second time in like 2011, 2012, after the, after the films had finished. Um, I, read, I read through all the books again and I think I just got too attached to the films. It's not like I didn't like the books. It's just I don't prefer them. I, I, prefer, <coughs> I, I much prefer the films as an experience, if you will. Um, I, I get that, as, especially if you're somebody who has seen the films like and identifies more with the films and stuff. Hmm. Um, but I had like... Because I first had the books read to me and started reading the um, the books, like when I was like four or five, I was one of those nerdy kids that just read a lot when I was small. Um, and so I already had like a world built in my head of Harry Potter, of what I knew all the characters were and what was going on, up to like the second or third book or whatever book we were up to when the first film came out. Um, so I already sort of like had an idea of all the characters in my head. And the good thing about that, of re- having that before you start watching the films, is that you can carry that on as the books go on without necessarily having the films come in and ruin your own interpretation of the characters. Not that the films ever did ruin, like, interpretations. It were just different interpretations. But I do see what you mean in terms of, like, you watch the films and then you read the books and you can't really get the film characters out of your head when you read the books. Because, again, they're sort of one and the same. But one of the benefits of 
reading the books quite a bit before the film came out when I was a kid is that I did manage to, at least for a little while, up until possibly, I think, book six, I did manage to have that separation of the characters of the books and the films, which just yeah. has sort of disappeared now. And it's kind of sad that I've forgotten my own book version of the world that I used to have as a kid. I, I still have it, you know. I, still, I mean, I... Philosopher's Stone, I, I saw the film just before I read the book, so I thought that was a bit of a shame in that I never really got my own image of the main three or of Hagrid or of Dumbledore. But every other film, I'd already read the book before I saw the film. It was, it was it, Philosopher's Stone is the only one this applies to. And I remember, especially when I was a teenager, and I got really obsessed with the books, and I got very, very precious about some of it. There were like some casting choices that I was outraged about, or some scenes that got cut that I was outraged about. And I still sort of like feel that way. <laughs> to be honest, I still kind of have my own version of the characters in my head. But the thing is, these films, they kind of do a really good job of adapting for the most part. So it's easy to just enjoy the films because you still you still always get the essence of it you still always get the gist of it yeah and i think some of the films do too good of a job of adapting the books yeah yeah I, well i think that's possibly the main issue with this one and with chamber of secrets is that it's too close to the book but anyway yeah should um, we dig into this one yeah i was gonna say we'll jump into the uh we'll jump into the ye old trailer yeah, and it is, and it is ye old now because it's nearly 20 years old this trailer so we, we could say it's ye old um and then we'll come back on the other side Mm-hmm. So we'll see you there. Right, so we're back on the other side of the trailer. And... Can I give you a, can I give you a little bit of trivia about that trailer? Yes. Um... Absolutely. Always want trivia. <laughs> well, it was the first appearance in any form of Hedwig's theme, which is the main Harry Potter theme. Yes. Um and John Williams wrote it in advance, months and months before he actually saw the film, because the studio <laughs> really wanted to deliberately set out to have an iconic movie theme. They wanted to, like, have it be a theme that people already know before they go to see the film for the first time. So they got John Williams to write the theme for the movie for the trailer before he'd even seen any footage. And so um, it was all done well in advance. So I just think that's a cool little fact. That I thought they started scoring the film in advance so they could get original music into the trailer. Lovely. Um, yeah. Just to talk about the opening scene... I've realised uh, while I've been kind of talking about this and listening to you talk about Hedwig's theme is that the entire first scene, like the first four to five minutes to the point where you see Dumbledore for the first, well, when the, with the owl on top of Privet Drive and then Harry being left on the doorstep, everything in that scene perfectly perfectly captures everything I feel about the whole film. In the, okay. It is magical and it's wonderful to watch and... I think the music is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you expect no less from John Williams, but wow, way to like establish character and universe with music within five minutes, just like that. The grown up, the uh, the adult actors, the, um, the 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 sort of like this endless revolving door of British legends is um, the best thing about the scene, and. On the other hand, it's trying a little too hard to be a British institution and a lot of the dialogue is very stilted and expository, unnecessarily so, to the point where, I mean, the first line just made me laugh, like, I should have expected to see you here, Professor McGonagall. I, I think it works. I, I like evening, it. 
Professor pulled, Dumbledore. Like, those, <laughs> the thing is that those lines from the first scene are directly pulled out of the box. Well, like, they are, but one of the interesting things is that this is actually one of the more drastically cut down scenes. Like this is a whole. Mm. This is the whole first chapter. Yeah, yeah. and actually the, 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 the actual first chapter of this is actually drastically cut down, and I think they do a good job with it. The first chapter of the book is spent like analysing the life of Mister Dursley and what he goes through and stuff. And there is a hint that they've done that because McGonagall says, as she does in the cha- second chapter, she's been chapter watching of the book, him all day. That she's something. been watching him all day, and she's the, the worst kind of muggles. But yeah, most of the dialogue. I mean, I think one of the reasons that the dialogue in this film comes across as a little contrived is because so much of it is just ripped directly out of the box and this is a very good example of that. I also think that because, I mean, I don't know whether they knew this was going to be the first of many because like for every Harry Potter Hunger Games, etc, there's an Eragon, there's a Stormbreaker, there's an Enders game, there's a series of unfortunate events there's a Golden Compass, you know, it's like there's a Percy Jackson, you know, there's like this, like, you know, a popular book series does not a popular film series make. And I don't know whether they knew this was going to be the first of many, that they knew while they were creating it that they were onto something massive, mm. or whether this was only ever really intended to be a standalone film and, you know, or something. Oh, like no, that. it definitely like, wasn't. It, they, they started filming Chamber of Secrets were, um, before this came out. But at, that was yeah. mainly because the books are already. Like, so get, we're already pre- becoming a pretty big success very fast, mm. and so they knew from the information the publisher had that it was essentially going to end up becoming a worldwide phenomenon. So they would have to do all of the films at some point. But regardless, I think that they know that regardless of whether it's pulled from the book or not. Like you know, I mean, there are element, there are lo- there's lo- as far as I'm aware, there's loads of dialogue in later films that's just like, exclusively for the films and stuff like oh, yeah, that. Probably. So you know, so there's no reason to necessarily stop them from doing it here. I think it's just that they know that they basically have five minutes to tell you who three, who four people are, and give a general idea of what's going on. Yeah. And I still, I mean, I like this film. I don't love it. It, I think it's fine. We'll get into it more. But this scene, everything I feel about this scene, I've realised that I feel the same way about um, the whole film, where, like, it's full of all kinds of, like, magical warm fuzzies, but it's also got some problems, but it's also very charming. And so uh, having those three things together, I think you could take that as my, you could take that and run away with it and have that as my takeaway of the film where like, it's full of all magical, you know, shock of the new kind of like warm fuzzies and oh, this world for the first time. And then it's also got problems. Like it's, it's a bit obvious that they're just kind of saying this so that the audience knows exactly who everybody is. And it's not natural. It feels a little bit inorganic, but at the same time, because it's a, a first time, because it's a kid's film, because it's got this very, very particular and very, very immersive atmosphere and aesthetic and everything like that. You can't help but be very much drawn in by it and intrigued by it. And yeah. Think, and it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's difficult to blame the film for being as, big on exposition as it is in terms of we'll make fun of it as we go in but a lot of the characters explaining what things are or exclaiming wow what is that you know so the audience knows that that is something to be interested in like it's difficult to blame the film for that given that 
and the, we can take it for granted now because Harry Potter is so well known and the universe of Harry Potter is basically so ingrained in popular culture that everyone knows how wands work, everyone knows how things in the wizarding world work. That wasn't the case when this film came out. People didn't know that, so they had to have all of these things explained mm. to them. They had to have all of the characters explained to them because this is their first... For the vast majority of people, like their first experience of Harry Potter would have been this film. So yeah. they had to have had all this stuff explained to them at the time. Yeah. Especially, like... Um, there would have been a lot of kids possibly that have read the books because they were kids books um, or maybe even some parents that have read the books to their kids but there will be a lot of parents taking their kids that don't know anything about the film that will still need things explaining to them or kids that you know haven't read the books at all that will need stuff explaining to them so yeah it is full of exposition to the point where it's almost ludicrous to watch now it's a bit distracting yeah (laughs) exactly yeah. yeah But at the time, it would have made sense because a lot of this stuff is just completely new to the world of fantasy and completely new to the world of film because it's just sort of stuff hasn't hadn't been done before. Like when J.K. Rowling, the thing that makes Harry Potter so special when J.K. Rowling came on the scene with these books is that so much of what we take for granted about magic um, and what we think of magic nowadays is basically built around what J.K. Rowling made. And it's... It's easy to say I've granted now because that's how popular culture is built now. But at the time, that wasn't how it was. So the film had to make it abundantly clear yeah. what the rules of this universe were. It's not even the rules. I think it's just it's penetrated pop culture it. so much now that I think we like genuinely forget or take for granted that some things are just like some of these words are just completely made up. Like Quidditch is a made up word. Like what's a golden snitch? What's a sorting hat? Like, what's platform nine and three quarters? These are just made-up things. Like, it's just completely taken for granted. And I actually think the film does a really great job of all this exposition. Like, there is a lot of it, but there's just so much to get through. And the thing is, a lot of a lot of franchises these days get criticised for, like, oh, well, it's just sort of a placeholder so they can set up the next one. Which, you know, a lot of films do get criticised for that. But this film is that. It's doing that. It's just doing it really, really well. Like, there's not much in the way of story in this film, really. Most of the story happens in the first half an hour. Like, boy finds out he's a wizard and goes to school. 150 pages. Yeah. Like, the first sort of third of this film is, like, the first 100 pages of the book, and then there's only 100 pages left. Like, there's not that much story in this one. It's constant setup of the whole world. Mm. But they do such a good job with it. And one of my observations that I always have about this film is that it always like it. All, I'm sure we'll all agree that it feels a bit too long. Like there's, it's too long. Like, there's too, just too long. much in the film. But yeah. it's so hard to think of anything that you could cut. The only I, I can only think of one thing. Just like why don't you two try it? Just as a general exercise, without jeopardizing the plots of any future films, or without leaving something unexplained or a character not introduced. What scenes could you actually cut from this film? Because I can only think of one. I wouldn't cut scenes. I would just make. Sh- the pace of this film is so, so deliberate and it's yeah. so bloated. There are so many gaps and silences and extended routines and it, it all adds up to about 15, 20 minutes worth of screen time that you could have easily just kind of compressed. And like It got to the point where when they were going to the dark forest, I was like, wow, I have been sat here for what feels like a long time and it doesn't feel like the film's going to end anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, there's little moments, like the whole yeah. stuff with like Filch talking to Hagrid, you could probably cut. I, th- I mean, the, the one thing I thought of that you could cut from the film entirely is the Norbert plot. I don't think that needs to be in the film. I think you can just have them walking on yeah, their way to Hagrid's and get caught. they that in Goblet of Fire without 
needed. No, it's not. Re- it's never reintroduced. It's a it different dragon, block, isn't it? No, Norbert is never ever reintroduced. Oh, well, not Norbert, but the fact that Charlie looks after oh, dragons yeah. and stuff like. Well, that's. I mean, that's not that. reintroduced in Goblet of Fire because Charlie never appears in the films. Yeah, so, but they, they kind of mention it that one of them's lo- Charlie's looking after one of the trial dragons in Romania or something, and yeah, yeah, but you can just yeah, you can just mention that again. That's probably J.K. Rowling thinking. Oh yeah, I wrote that character looks after dragons, so I'm gonna reference that as a point in this. Well, book, apparently you know, the there was it. something that was cut because um, obviously at this point I think it was the Order of the Phoenix that was gonna be next, and there was a line in this film that no one knows what it was, but apparently uh, J.K. Rowling said, "No, take that out because it directly contradicts something that's gonna happen in Order of the Phoenix." And I can't. Oh yeah, she that. was looking over the shoulder like this, yeah. this, it's particularly the later films. There's a few that I know about, but there's things that I thought of here where I'm like, as a filmmaker, I would take this out, but you can't because it jeopardizes future books. Like I would not have put ne- nearly headless Nick in this film, but then you think, no, you need him for Chamber of Secrets, so you have to have a few short scenes with him in this one. Mm. And it's do you like, need him for Chamber of Secrets? I mean, I know he gets petrified, but that's literally the only reason he's in Chamber well, of Secrets. Well, it, it's what it's it's not that he gets mm. petrified; is that he it's that he stops somebody else from being yeah, petrified. Yeah, he's a reflection he that someone through. else gets petrified. Yeah, but the, there, are other, the plot. there are other ghosts in the Harry Potter world. Like, just introduce mm. the concept of ghosts and then have a ghost get petrified. It doesn't have to be named or anything. Well, I guess, I guess. And but to I mean, be fair, <coughs> there, are, there are loads of things cut from the book in this. Like, um, well, Peeves is cut. Pe- Peeves is, is gone. I mean, they shot Peeves was in the video games. Yeah, Peeves so, I mean, was in the video game, yeah. They, they shot scenes with Rick Mail and everything, and then they decided yeah. not to include him. And I think Peeves is great in the book. I think it's one of the great tragedies of the films that Peeves never makes it in. Uh, of I, all I think of he's the, great. Uh, of all of the things to cut that they could have cut, and they cut, oh, Potter, you rotter. I know. <laughs> and got you, Kong. One of my favourite <laughs> jokes in the whole books is just gone from the films. But anyway, yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, I, think, I think the exposition and the pacing and stuff, yeah, it is a problem, and it makes the film a bit overly long. But, I mean, we were all kids when it came out, and I don't think we had any problem with the length of it. I don't think we ever got itchy feet. Like, we watched it a million times. It's not a problem. I think if you're you're watching it really analytically, like in the way that we're trying to do here, it shows itself a bit. Or if you've already watched it so much, you know what's going to happen. But yeah, on that first viewing, it's just like, there's just so much to take in that it just flies by you. It doesn't matter. It's like the first Lord of the Rings film, or any Lord of the Rings film, where it's like, yeah, this is a massively long film, but every scene's just like throwing so much at you that it doesn't matter because time is just flying by because you're taking it all in. Mm. I do think, I'm not necessarily sure about time flying by. I think Rob is right in that deliberate choices in terms of making shots or having dialogue spoken or having character exchanges are just taken like a little bit too slowly to the point where the film just just seems to plod along a little bit too slowly. I think that's more the second half of the film. The first, the first like act of the film, the first third of the film I think is like, I think the fact that they get Harry out away from the Dursleys to Diagon Alley to on Hogwarts Express to having gone through the Sorting Hat to go into his first <laughs> lesson, the fact that they get to that point in about 45 minutes I think is incredible. How they managed mm. to get through all of that in so, mm. so little time, I think it's like breakneck pace. The second half of the film, yeah, that's a bit slow. I will give you that. Yeah, yeah. you can kind of tell that the film can't wait to get to Diagon Alley because I feel like that's when the film settles into its pace quite nicely where like the first sort of the first sort of 25 minutes everything up to the bit in Gringotts is all a bit like let's get through this plot point plot point and then when they get to Diagon Alley and there's that kind of like rising shot um, behind Harry and Hagrid's backs that kind of shows you Diagon Alley that's where the film kind of goes ah 
I, I, I'm on this side of the universe now. This is where I'm happy. Yeah, this it can't wait I'm, to get rid yeah. of the Dursleys. Yeah. Can you really blame them, though? Because, like, up until that point, when you get to Diagon Alley and you start to see all the magic and stuff, the film is literally Harry Potter without the magic and wonder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. So it's it, Harry Potter before Harry Potter starts. So yeah. It, yeah, it needs to get to that point because the thing that excites the audience about the Harry Potter universe is all the cool magic and shit that can happen in the universe. I mean, and, I, I love the Dursleys. I don't, I don't think there's anything funnier in this film than the sight of the three Dursleys panicking and screaming and crying. I think that's hilarious. I think that all three of them are such good comic actors together. They have such brilliant chemistry when <coughs> when they're screaming at each other about the snake in the zoo or. Or the letters coming through the well, every orifice in the house, and like you know, so it's... Daddy's gone mad, hasn't he? <laughs> There's always something about something which always makes me giggle or smile at least a little bit. Is um, is Petunia's scream when she sees Dudley in the tank, and she just does this shriek where she just like drops dead. And it's oh my god, it's so so funny. Yeah, yeah. They, they make every second count with the Dursleys. And actually, uh, just a broader point, I think the best thing about this film. The thing I think the whole reason the Harry Potter movies succeed, and the thing that Chris Columbus and the team behind this film deserve the most praise for, is the casting. It's yeah. absolutely astonishingly good. The casting, everyone is just perfect. Well, I the cast really adult makes is. me. Um, the cast kind of makes I, me laugh. Well, but... I mean, the, the main three. Let's put them to one side for a minute. But yeah, the adult cast. I mean, there's the three that J.K. Rowling was writing for herself that she chose herself, which is Alan Rickman as Snape, Maggie Smith as McGonagall. And uh, who's the third one? Who's the third one? Hagrid. Hagrid. Robbie Coltrane is Hagrid, where she went straight forward and said, look, it's always been these three who I've been writing for. You need to hire those actors. Everybody else, like Richard Harris as Dumbledore. Oh, my God, he is. Even like, Ian Hart as Quirrell and like Richard Griffiths as Vernon. Just perfect. Absolutely perfect. I, yeah. I love the way they introduce all the cast, like all of the adult cast, because it's like, you know, the first person you see is, um, sorry, I forget his name, uh, Richard Harris, who played Dumbledore. Richard Harris, yeah. He is introduced with a little bit of a close-up, and then you get introduced to Maggie Smith with a little bit of a close-up, and then you get introduced to Robbie Coltrane with a little bit of a close-up, and then you get introduced to the guy who played Uncle Vernon. I forget his name. He died. Richard Griffiths. That's him, Richard Griffiths. He's introduced with a close-up, and there's all this like, oh, look, it's this guy. It's this person. It's this woman. You know her from this film. Look, she's in this one. We're a British institution. And I want to kind of talk a little bit about that, where I kind of mentioned that, because I think you have to place this film in the context of the time. This is just, just on the last embers of Cool Britannia, where mm. there's another British invasion going on in the States in the mid-90s, where suddenly you have, like, a, a Tony Blair and the Union Jack is this is this proud symbol again, and we're making, you know, you've just had all the, the, the Piers Brosnan uh, Bond films, Notting Hill, Hugh Grant. Um, Britain's very proud of itself as a cultural force, and I feel like the way that they introduce all the esteemed British actors in this is a way of kind of introducing American audiences and obviously British audiences as well, but mainly to kind of like break through like the American market. They've really brought out like the best of British. And obviously Maggie Smith had just been in Sister Act as well. Yeah. So she was but a the... familiar face over there. And and obviously we have this like, it's it was post 9-11, so it was um, the beginnings of the special relationship and, like, this weird grand unification between the US and the UK. And all of the... The whole film's general aesthetic is very 19... It's kind of like 1940s, maybe 1930s, like, Dis, uh, like Disney-British classic Christmas. All of the greens and reds are all very pronounced and 
everything's in a castle and all the colour grading's sort of like a little bit Victorian and a little bit affected by sort of like time and dust. And and obviously you get like steam trains and like all of these things that Britain are, Britain's really famous for. And it feels like the first 30 minutes and like King's Cross Station and it's just like throwing all of these things at you and it's like, Britain! There, there, there is that, but you've <laughs> got to be very careful, Rob, to not be revisionist about this. A lot of those actors were not that famous before they were in this. Like, Richard Harris was not, like, a worldwide household name in any way. Richard oh, no, Griffiths I'm... Um, Richard, Richard, Richard Griffiths um, was... Well, Richard Griffiths was basically just a TV actor. I'm he was not sane. really that well-known. And so was... Um, I should like, clarify... Um, there are, Sorry, so what were we saying? Sorry, I should clarify. I don't mean that they've gone for worldwide names. I kind of mean that they've gone for household names in the UK who could like who are just the best that this country can offer. In yeah, all but the, the thing is, like, like King's time, King's right? King's Cross is iconic because of Harry Potter. Like that's that's what that's the type of thing that I mean. Is it like a lot? Of, oh yeah, yeah. Like it's not King's Cross is not was not a place that any any tourist ever visited. It's not even like the main station in London, is it? It's just yeah. a station. I mean, like, it's one of several main stations in London, but like yeah, I, it's I know not it's mean. not it's not a tourist spot. It's not something that people went to, and like I, I just think yeah, you got to be careful to sort of remember that a lot of this stuff is so much more iconic because it was in Harry Potter. And I think you you've got to be careful to not take away from the achievements of this film really that. I mean, I, 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 Maggie Smith was, you know, she was an Oscar winner and she was a very esteemed actress and she'd been in sister acts and stuff. But, like, nobody went to see this film because of her. And nobody went to see this film because oh, of her. Oh, no, Alan no, no. Rick they went to see like it that. because they love the books. But, like, once you're there, I think it's... It, I think the film is very clever with how it has very familiar signposts about what Britain is to the world in order to keep that kind of welcome... I should say that this sounds like a criticism, but it's not. I think this is part of what makes the film very charming. The, the way that I think Britain kind of like affects the world and kind of like the way that it tries to represent itself in the world and how it actually comes across to people are all very different things, whereas I feel like they've managed to distill and managed to summarise and encapsulate very kind of subtly but very distinctly British images like you know steam trains are a very big British thing castles are a famously British thing you know it's and I feel like they're and as as a as a franchise I feel like they knew that that this film was going to be a bit of a banker because of how successful um like British filmmakers had been in the states during the 90s I'm thinking like Notting Hill I'm thinking Four Weddings who were that were really really famous um, on both sides of the Atlantic. And there is, but also, like, a lot of this was the appeal of the book. The Britishness and, and, was one and, of the major the appeals of the book. Were, and the books were very famous on the other side of the pond, too, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's not really an invention of the film, really. That comes from the books, is how British it all is. I think I mean, a lot there of the is ins- that, though, yeah. A lot of the insistence on how British the film should be anyway was done because J.K. Rowling demanded it when she was... Releasing the book, uh, releasing yeah. the rights of the books to become films. Yeah, Steven Spielberg was attached to direct, and he wanted to hire Haley Joel Osment as Harry, who'd just done The Sixth Sense. And J.K. Rowling came in and said, "No, no American actors are allowed in any of these movies." And <laughs> I believe that the only American actor who appears in any of the films is the girl who plays Susan Bones, who is Chris Columbus's daughter. And she doesn't talk. And she doesn't talk. Yeah. She's the one and only American to appear in any of the movies. Oh. Yeah. 
What, so a lot what, of it is J.K. Rowling saying, like, no, this is British, British, British. You've got to make it British. Like, there's some yeah. Irish people and there's some European people and stuff, but it's pretty much, like, entirely British movie, really. It's, yeah, it's I, I think that's that is deliberate decisions of Britain in the 90s, isn't it? There's some Irish and there's some European, <laughs> and it's mainly British people. Actually, yeah. a, good, a good way of explaining it would be that this appeals to the type of international person who would come to the UK just to go to London to visit all the history and all the heritage and all the castles and ride on a red bus and point at a red uh, post box and a red telephone box and have a great time with it and get that side of Britain, the kind of face that Britain likes to put on itself to international people who want to come and be tourists for a while. Um, Sort of like in those episodes of Friends where they go to Britain and it's like, everybody's Richard Branson and everybody's um, Emily Waltham and they've all got um, sort of like Green Belt Home Counties accents and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, Another thing that really like strikes me about the casting of the film as well is that it doesn't always match the book descriptions, but that just doesn't matter at all because they don't bother about like who is the most on paper perfect match for the part. It's more about like who do you believe is that character? Like Alan Rickman is like he's actually completely miscast. He's like twenty five years too old for the part. Like <laughs> Snape is like just about to turn thirty in Philosopher's Stone, and they cast Alan Rickman who's like nearly sixty. It's like he's completely wrong for the part. And there are others as well. Like Dudley's supposed to be like bleach blonde, and there mm. are other, and Harry's got the wrong eye color. Even it's like some of them are just wrong. But it doesn't matter. It's like they capture the essence of the characters, and that's the more oh, yeah, more Petunia's important thing. Supposed to be blonde, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, they're all supposed to be blonde. I think. Mm. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, because yeah. that would make Harry stand out from them a little bit more because he, he obviously has brown hair, and that yeah. would make him stand out as a bit of a black sheep, even physically. Do you I know this? Petunia's actress. And do you know the story about uh, Lily Potter as well for her brief role in this film? That uh, there was no. a there was a big push from all the producers and from Chris Columbus to get J.K. Rowland to do it as a cameo, and she was like, first of all, no, this is like a major emotional moment in the film. It needs to be an actress, and also like she's gonna have big scenes later on, like in Goblet of Fire and in Deathly Hallows. I, I'm not playing her. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they get to Diagon Alley. And they've been to the island and everything like that. I, I, by the way, I love that. I love that the idea of the Dursleys' idea to get away far away is just to go to an... It, where is the island? Yeah. It, did, did they it's ever just, say where the islands are in the book? It's just like some to? hut on a rock. I remember yeah. reading this in the book and being really scared because like, it's described as if they're on some sort of like rowboat that's about to break in the middle of a storm in the middle of a sea in Norway on this tiny rock that this hut just exists on. And you're like, you have no concept of it being like an Airbnb or a hotel or anything like that. <laughs> it's just like as if he goes to an abandoned hut to sort of like yeah, Harry gets there for a night. And it's so bizarre. But it also, it, it, the effect of it, because again, these are kids books and kids films. So everything is hyper-realistic or hyper-exaggerated, hyper should I say. So this idea of like terror of Harry having to be taken to this tiny island is really exemplified in the book. And they do a really good job of showing that in the film as well. Yeah. The, the, the letter that he gets, the actual final letter that he opens, is addressed to yeah. like Harry Potter, the floor, the hut on the rock. <laughs> it's just like literally nowhere. And Uncle Vernon has somehow procured a shotgun on the way. It's like, yeah, they, they, they are just... This is one of the... Problems I have with the plot in general, like, this is inherited from the book, it's not a problem with the film. It's like, oh my god, the abuse that Harry is suffering is 
insane. One, how is he not, like, messed up forever by this? And two, how has, like, no teacher noticed? How has nobody ever intervened in his life that, like, he's not allowed to he's get posted? He's basically a slave. He's a slave. He does all the cooking and cleaning, and he has none of his own clothes In the box, I think, as a birthday present, he gets, like, um, like a half-eaten sandwich one year or something like that. <laughs> like, something really crap. And that's, like, the only birthday present yeah. he's ever had off them. And, so, like, see, Dudley, Dudley yeah. goes to a private school, and Harry... Gets all his clothes dyed by Aunt Petunia. Like she mm. dyes them in this in this old yeah. wash bowl or something. It's and like, they, like how smell. is it? How has a teacher never intervened and noticed this stuff? It's oh, it's 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 maddening. It's very strange. I think. But... I think it's one of those things where if you think about it, it just it it's just a kind of worms. You might as well <coughs> just kind of. Well, the big kind of worms to... is Dumbledore. What was he thinking? Mm, well, I think that as the next group of films kind of confirm. These films need a place to start, and the story needs a place to start, and it needs to go from somewhere so ordinary, and it needs to give Harry the motivation to want to escape. And I think she maybe carried it a little bit too far with how abusive they are, because they literally make him sleep in a cupboard but under the stairs. It, and... Again, you've got to think of the context of these films as for, for, for who they were written. These books were literally written for, like, like kids like any any age between five and 11 or something along those lines they were written for really young kids and you've got to think of them sort of like similar to almost almost like Roald Dahl stories in terms yes, of like exactly um, how over exaggerated things are and J.K. Rowling she writes some like children's novels and the plots are like children's novels in that Harry is in this like ridiculously abusive family that obviously never would have existed just like how in um, The Witches like you know you wouldn't really get shrunk into a tiny. Um, uh, what happens in the witches? I don't Mandela? know. It's like well, a lot of the um, okay, Willy Wonka. Mati- no, Ma- no, Matilda is a better comparison because she's also like abused within yeah, the family. Okay, like Matilda is exactly the same scenario. It's not necessarily like it's not trying to be realistic. It's trying to um, it's to take adult writing techniques of trying to get um, your reader engaged with a character, but having to hyperemphasize it to make it easier for a child to do the same thing that an adult woman read in the novel. So she writes a character that can easily be identified as a child. She wants she wants children who feel left out to feel like the um, the sometimes maybe a little bit bullied or sometimes they don't feel like they fit in to really identify with the character of Harry Potter. And to do that, she's got to over, completely overemphasize the character not fitting in and not being included and she does that by putting him in a very yeah. abusive situation yeah, more than enough of an explanation for me that that's yeah. that's totally yeah but that's the thing totally that's the thing like there is there is a an actual like as jake has made clear there is an actual point there in like i was saying earlier and that this is basically this is a film for kids it's hard for adults to engage with this because like i watch this as an adult and it's just like well it's just ridiculous like no family would ever get away with treating them like this like this is fantasy and then it's like, well, yeah, it is. Like, it's for kids. It doesn't matter. So, yeah, that that's a good example, I think, really, of, like, how this is... Un- I think, unlike all of the other Harry Potter films, this one is exclusively for kids, I think. And so it's hard for me to approach this too analytically. But it's, it's exclusively for kids because the books at this point are exclusively for kids, which obviously changes as the books develop. Yeah. But the first couple of books, maybe up until Goblet of Fire, you could argue Prince... Uh, Prisoner of Azkaban are basically for kids. Prisoner of Azkaban slash Goblet of Fire starts to become more sort of young adult teen novels. But I think the 
the point of it being a kid's book for me is most emphasising the scene that we were just talk about, talking about in the hut when Hagrid comes in and he's, he reveals to Harry that he's a wizard. The first thing that Harry says is, I can't be a wizard. And so, like, I, it, which is a really bizarre line when you think about it, because Harry's first reaction isn't to think, what the hell, wizards exist? Magic exists? <laughs> it's not. It's, his immediate thought is to jump to, well, yeah, wizards exist, but that can't possibly be me. And obviously, as an adult, if you, someone told you you're a wizard, you'd be like, what the hell? Wizards aren't a thing. You're just crazy, you stupid person. But Harry, who is a child, and like all children who read that book at the time, who also wanted to be wizards, would have reacted in the exact same way that Harry did. So, again, this just sort of emphasises to me how much this film and the book that it is based on is basically is made for kids and yeah, unapologetically um, does that. And it's unique, unique in the Harry Potter series, I think. In that sense, and that it is just like squarely for kids. Yeah, I think that you know one of the kind of overall problems I have with this, <coughs> the, the tone that this film strikes is that the story's almost too dark for the for the story. It's really weird. The story's too dark for itself. Like you know, for a film that's about a boy who has fame thrust upon him because his parents were magical geniuses who were killed by an evil dark wizard. It's essentially just like a fairground ride. Like this kid grows up thinking that his parents died in a car crash and that he's living with his abusive auntie and uncle. And like it turns out, oh no, they were actually murdered. And it, it just never seemed, until you get to the Mirror of Erised stuff later on, I don't think the film ever really goes, oh god, yeah, this is actually a really heavy story we're dealing with here. <laughs> I totally agree with that. I think based on its contemporary films, like films that are age for a similar age group, like the story does come across as a bit too dark. But then when you look back at the book, again, I know we keep looking back at the book, but this film is so heavily based on the book, it's practically impossible not to. If you look at the contemporaries that surround the book, it's it's not it's not any more dark than any other kids' books were at the time, or at least any kids' books that mm. target the same audience were. Again, Roald Dahl being a really fantastic example of that, of like how really weird things happen in his books where in Willy Wonka, children get stretched for life or turn into blueberries. Um, and weird, freaky stuff happens. In Matilda, she ends up... Um, Klein and Petrine almost dying when she's trying to break into um, Trunchable's house. Yeah. And Trunchable, I think, tries to attack her or something. Like, there's some weird, dark stuff that happens in kids. Well, they make books. that kid eat an entire cake. Yeah, yeah Trunchable yeah. throws a kid out of a window by a her. Uh, somehow she ends up surviving. So, like, uh, oh, I think Matilda, it's implied that Matilda says with her powers. So, if you look at, like, comparable kids' books or books that aim for a same audience, like, that's just a thing in kids' books. They're just weirdly dark, and it doesn't feel right in films because films, most one most films that are for kids aren't based on kids' books, so it, you don't get the same translation as you do with Harry Potter. And two, kids' films just in general tend to be a little bit friendlier than the book counterparts do. So it's um, all, the thing is, it's it's all about how you express the themes, though, because the thing is, the themes of the Harry Potter story are all here. Like, one of the big things... Like, J.K. Rowling had just lost her mum at the time she was writing this, and so one of the big themes of all of the Harry Potter books and films is that people die, and it's not fair, and there's nothing you can do about it. Like, in all of the last four books, obviously, like, a major character dies, and it's tragic, and you have the Mirror of Erised scene here, where basically 10, 15 minutes is devoted to, like, 
Oh, you think your parents might come back one day? They're not going to. Sorry, life sucks. You're an <coughs> yeah, orphan, and you always will be. This is really great. Um, yeah, and it's 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 really really sad. And I think it's probably the most poignant moment of the film when he puts his hand against the mirror and he realizes that magic cannot bring people back from the dead. Nothing can. And that is like that's Voldemort. Like his whole quest is to be able to live forever. Like that's the whole story. Like it is in there. All the themes of the Harry Potter story are here. It's just filtered through a very, very childlike perspective for now. Again, it's um, that whole mirror of Erised thing is a really good example of it. And it, uh, it's another example of something that shouldn't necessarily have been cut out of the book. Because in the book, the whole mirror of Erised thing is massively extended. And that Harry returns to the mirror like 20 times, becomes a little bit addicted to it. And has an argument with Ron over it because Ron is like, you, you need to stop looking in the mirror. Um, I I want to see what I what I'm getting as well, and Harry's like, well, you're just getting a stupid house cup tro- trophy or uh, yeah. a Quidditch trophy. I, I'm yeah. getting to see my parents. So there's that whole sadness of um, Harry being absolutely desperate to see his parents to the point where he becomes addicted to just going to a mirror and literally seeing a moving image of them. So th- there's another point of the where the film doesn't necessarily take something from the book that it should have done in terms of emotional poignancy. Um, yeah. There was sorry, there was something I just wanted to mention. Um, you know, we were talking about Matilda, uh, the guy, who, the kid who has to eat all the cake. Bruce Bogchutter. Yeah. yeah, he is. He's. Am I right in saying that he's played by a guy called Bruce Cook, and he was only in one of the film, which was with Rupert Grint, which was at, at Thunderpants. Oh, oh, is he in Thunderpants? He's in Thunderpants. I, I think that I think that might be right, but I, I could I could be wrong about that. I just want to Google this Bruce Cook. That that was the big like cash in that Rupert Grint got out of this film as Thunderpants. Yeah, <laughs> I could be wrong about that, but um, it sounds right. It was definitely someone who looked like him. Rupert Grint was definitely the comedic. Um, breakout of this film when he was a kid, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah, I think well, that's yeah. like it's a um, good segue that really to talk yeah, about I was the main just trio. Talking about the others because yeah, I, I noted down when each character turned up in the film. So Ron turns up after thirty three minutes. Hermione turns up after thirty eight minutes, and Draco Malfoy turns up after forty one. Yeah, and wow, that's a long time into that film. For you know, like I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this film isn't Harry, Ron, and Hermione. It's Harry and Ron. And Hermione, it's a bit. I wouldn't like... say that. I would say this film is Harry and Hagrid featuring Ron and Hermione. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, I like that. Hagrid gets far more screen time than Ron and Hermione does. Far I more. I shouldn't have told you that. I mean, yeah, ha- Hagrid's a. I-, I prefer the way that Hagrid is in the darker films, where he's more of a. He's, he's hardly in them, though. He's hardly in those those last few no, films. No, no, I, I kind of prefer his fleeting appearances because I love Hagrid and I love um, Robbie Coltrane's portrayal of him and everything like that, but I think the way that they write him in this film is essentially just someone who appears quite a lot and is basically just a massive exposition bomb, and then he goes, oh, just give it a bit of exposition there, right to the main characters who shouldn't have had it. Shouldn't have done that, and I feel like it gets a bit repetitive with the ways like, oh, I shouldn't have told you that, oh, I shouldn't have said that, oh, I shouldn't have told you that, and it's a bit like, yeah, we know, we get the point, and it's something that kind of bothers me in the first film, because then I think the scene in the whole franchise that really um, massively turned me on to Hagrid is the bit where Hermione is referred to as a mudblood, and they go to Hagrid, and Hagrid's like, don't think about it. I don't think anyone's ever ever described themselves as turned on to Hagrid before. Haha, <laughs> 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 well, you know, can't resist the um, 
Robbie Coltrane. The giant. In, te- in terms of story, though, it's really interesting because, like, one of the things you immediately think is like, and he, and McGonagall even says it straight off. It's like, why would you trust this guy? Like, he just blurts out all our secrets. Like, he is clearly not the person to be going to get the Philosopher's Stone and bring in Harry Potter with him and stuff. <coughs> like, he's not. He's not the guy to do it. Then you realise that Dumbledore's whole plan is that Harry has to go and get the Philosopher's Stone so that he can Bring melt Voldemort's stone. face off. Like, it has to be Harry who does it. Mm. So Hagrid has to accidentally let it slip to Harry, so he's actually a very good person to have there. Hagrid yeah. is the person who slips Harry information without him realising it's happening. It's almost as if Dumbledore knows exactly what's going to happen, yeah. so plans are all in reverse. Yeah. yeah, another thing where it's like, the story is there, it's just it's still putting through, being put through that kid filter at this point. Hmm. Dumbledore is behind everything in this film. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so, just what do we make of Hermione in this? Um, I think my personal opinion is that Hermione in this first film is probably the, in terms of the acting, is probably the better of the actors here out of the main three, but develops the least throughout the whole series. Because I think, like, I think Ron's always praised in this one for being quite humorous. Um, and frankly, just to put it out there, I think most of the child actors in this film are awful because children cannot act. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know. You are so mean about child actors. Well, I mean, it's not necessarily true because if you look at something like Stranger Things, the child actors in that are great. They are much older than the kids in this. Much older. Oh, right, okay. Well, okay, fine. I, I stand to it then that 11-year-olds cannot act because they haven't had the necessary training required to make them complex actors. Yeah. So these kids just, like, they appear a bit wooden. Like, there are so many lines in this that are meme-worthy just because of how the kids deliver them. <laughs> My favourite being, of course, but Hagrid, how, how am, am I, I to pay, pay for all this? this? I, I haven't, haven't any money. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it's so terribly written. Like, that is such a bad line. <laughs> but, yeah, that's always stood out. Or like, worse, expensive. Bell. Yeah, and I think I think Hermione, pro- like Emma Watson, a young Emma Watson, comes across as probably the one with the most like, um, lo- the most um, personality to a character. But that is mainly because Emma Watson was Hermione. At yeah, she's age. playing she's, herself. She's admitted that she was just playing herself at the time, and that she basically was Hermione. So that's why she comes across as a genuine character, and also explains why she probably develops the least out of all the actors when it comes along, with the exception of Daniel Radcliffe up to maybe film six. Well, Daniel Radcliffe actually starts to become relatively good. Um, I I think he really really improves in Order of the Phoenix because he has a lot to do. But we'll we'll get to that. But um, but, I don't know with Hermione. It's I love Hermione, but I hate the way that she's written in this film. Like she, I think Hermione is the real MVP of this film. She's clever. She's resourceful. She's determined. She doesn't give a fuck what anybody thinks about her. But the film doesn't seem to recognize that she's all of these wonderful things. Yeah, it's kind of like she's she's all these wonderful things in spite of the way the script treats her. Completely. There's a point where Andy mentioned yesterday that I hadn't even thought of when she's been attacked by the Crawling Dungeon because she went in there to have a cry. Then Harry and Ron blundle in and save her accidentally by doing what they do. And she, when she's explaining to Professor McGonagall what happened, she didn't do anything wrong. She just went to the bathroom to have a cry, and Harry and Ron came in and saved her. 
But none of them did anything wrong. Not, nece- not nece- none of them really did anything wrong. But for some reason, she blurts out this story about how she thinks she's superior to everyone else. So went to take on this troll herself, and then Harry and Ron came in and um, heroically saved her. Which, to be fair, they did save her, although they did it accidentally. They, they did it a bit stupidly. I, I, I do feel sad that she has to own up to something like that. It is no, but it, what that's, this really bothers me. What's she owning up to? None of them did anything wrong. She I don't was understand just crying this. Crying in a toilet? Is she just? Why, why does she feel the need to make out that she was being pig-headed and going out and taking on this troll on her own when that wasn't actually what happened? She just went to a toilet to have a cry because she got bullied? She doesn't even have to say that. She just went to the <coughs> toilet. What's wrong with being in the toilet? Like, I, I just don't understand what she was even confessed to. It was... I just well, don't you know, get I that. mean, if that Pottermore thing is anything to go by, using the toilet at all was frowned upon in the 1800s in Hogwarts. You could just shit on the floor and spell it away. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I just... But no, seriously, like, I've, I've really never understood that in the book either. Like, what's she covering up for? I don't get it. Uh, yeah, do, I feel really sorry that? for her. I don't know. I, I, I really do. I, I feel like... I don't know. I guess that there are. I mean, as as three men, we are obviously very very qualified to talk about this. But I feel like you know, <coughs> I don't know. I feel like as men, especially as a straight guy, like I've kind of grown up in this world where like everything. It's it's the whole. I'm a white male, aged eighteen to forty nine. Everyone listens to what I say, no matter how stupid. And you know, and Lisa's like, it's stupid being young. No one listens to you. I hate being old. No one listens to you. And then Homer obviously comes in all confident. And I feel like. I don't know. Hermione is just so more intelligent, and so as a witch, she is way more intelligent, way more developed, way more mature as a person. And I just feel like the whole film—it's just like Hermione will say something, and then Ron and Her- Ron and Harry will look at each other and just roll their eyes and go, "Oh, girls." And yeah, but that's the, that's what yeah. kids do. I mean, it that's... is what it is what kids do. But I just I feel so bad because, like, you know, I mean, obviously we'll never get like a proper perspective on this, but like. As men, I think we kind of, we grow up in the world and we're told that, you know, it's kind of like boys can say, boys can say anything, but boys can be as loud as they want and they can be as boys brash as they boys. want. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. Whereas like girls just have to be grateful to be listened to. And I just feel so sorry for Hermione because she is just like all of these girls who have grown, like... I mean, I, I'm only, I can only speak from experiences I know, but like, you know, they just must feel so shy and like i get conscious of this sometimes when we're on the podcast and um nor is on and or like when tony was on or when vicky was on i mean and i just feel a bit like uh, you know are, are we talking too much are we talking over them and i feel like in this film it's just it's basically hermione saying something and doing something completely like totally like determined and resourceful and clever and it's the right decision basically every time but the film portrays her as a know-it-all yeah you, re- you realize that this is completely deliberate though like that is the point which is that Hermione has to struggle against all this and that is mm. her arc basically throughout a lot of the movies which is that she is the real star of this generation not Harry she is the one who as we later find out goes on to be minister of magic she is the one who, like, she destroys more Horcruxes than anyone else, I think. Like, she is the real MVP of the, of the books. I am kind and of talking exclusively about the films, because obviously I, my memories of the and books And the films as well. Like, she is, she, um, is, she is just by far the most popular of the main three. By far. Is she, this is, she is all completely like different. in the books, though, like, where it's like she'll say something pretty sensible, and then Ron and Harry, will, or Ron, especially Ron, will just go, oh, 
she needs to sort out her priorities. Like, is there anything like that in the books? Where... I mean, there is, yeah, there it's worse in the books. It's it's it, this is it's deliberate. Like, you're not supposed to agree with Harry and Ron. You're supposed to realize that Hermione is the voice of reason and that Harry and Ron are idiots. You're supposed to feel like that. At least, Everybody well, sees it that it way. It gets like that towards the end of the books, but obviously that's a relatively complex set of feelings to make five to ten year olds try and believe when they're reading Philosopher's Stone. So obviously, no matter how it's intended to be written, like whether it's like to try and develop Hermione's character arc, when you're young and you're reading these books, it just comes across as Hermione is being ignored because she's a girl and that's what happens to girls. So you just sort of play along with it. So, which is obviously isn't right, but and, and no matter if the book tries to redeem itself later on, which they do because they make Hermione's character a lot stronger later on in the films and make a point of showing that she's had a struggle throughout her childhood in terms of being listened to and being heard. Um, at this point in the books, kids reading this, obviously they don't know that and they don't understand that that's going to happen. So it does make a point, but it is also somewhat dangerous to be making this point at, making that point at this point to such young children when mm. ideally you should just be developing a character that is, you know, like a female Harry Potter equivalent at this point. There's an interesting story, though, which is that J.K. Rowling, um, when she was first meeting Steve Cloves, who was at the... Te- you know, he was auditioning to write the film, basically. She she knew in advance she, the, that the main question she was going to ask him is, who is your favourite character? And she's like... And she, said, she said she remembers thinking, he's going to say Ron, and so I'm going to know that he doesn't get this. But he didn't. He said Hermione. And she's like, oh my God, you're perfect for this because you completely understand what all of these books are about because you recognise that Hermione is the most important character. It's it's kind of nice, it's comforting to know this because I know that obviously Hermione... you know, she keeps being referred to in later films as like, um, oh, you really are the brightest witch of your age and you really are this and you really are that. And I feel like, especially in the second film when she gets petrified, I feel like in terms of the whole franchise, I think that's when they really, like the film really starts to work hard at not only making her sympathetic, but bringing her into the central three. And then obviously by the time of the third film, she's ahead of the game with the time turner. And she's... um, She's she's then the person who provides. She's she she provides clarity and she's very sensible in later films. Like even in little moments where Harry's like, "Oh, I finished last in this task. I finished last," and then she's like, "Next to last, flirt never got past the lady laws or whatever she says." You know that. So, I think that they get much better at dealing with her and representing her in later films. And even to be honest, later in this film, like I mean, I know that it made me laugh when she said it. When it was like, "We've never heard this before in the film," but she just goes, "Oh, of course, Devil Snare hates sunlight." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it's like, oh yeah, that thing. It, oh yeah, you didn't mention it. And but um, yeah, no, I have funny feelings about how Hermione's used in this. It's it's not something I've properly worked out yet. But again, it's it's like Hermione being the MVP is really shown, like you said, at the end of the film, where she basically she solves. Well, she basically solves every all She's of like, the yeah, every room. Like, yeah. like the in in the books and in in the films, it's supposed. I mean, I know the film misses out one challenge which is a potion challenge where you've yeah, got to try and drink that. one um, that makes you immune to, that isn't poison or makes you well that was hermione's big one that she figured out in the book but in, so all the, in the film in the film they change it so that she figures out basically all the others to make up for the fact that hair 
one that she solved in the book is not in the film. So she they basically spread her across all the others instead. But she even in the books, like she plays a, a vital part to all of them because she, she solves the devil snare issue anyway um, because of her knowledge. You know, it's like good job Hermione paid attention in herbology sort of thing. Um, I mean, Harry obviously does the key thing because he's a seeker, but it's Hermione that works out. That's that's what's going to be done, isn't it? Yeah. And then obviously in the book you've got the potions that Hermione works out. Ron just for some reason happens to be good at wizard's chess for reasons that I don't quite comprehend. I um, think it's just an and have it's like a having older brothers thing. Like you just you know like you there was probably that one kid at school who had like an older brother which meant that he was much better at yeah. Grand Theft Auto than everybody else. I feel like it's just the same thing where it's like Yeah, use it as a proxy of... for video games. Like say if you were going through this and you had a kid with you and one of the rooms you had to get through was a Fortnite challenge. It's like, right, leave it to the kid. Yeah. They, they, they will do this, no problem. Um, <laughs> interesting facts, the moves that Ron says during chess, a lot of them just don't make any sense. <laughs> like, in a chess game, they just don't. Especially I mean, when you... let's not get into the rules of games in this universe, because Quidditch has always kind of stumped me a little bit. No, Wizard's Chess is literally just chess. Like, it's the same rules as chess, except the pieces are alive. So, Well, yeah, yeah. So this this game of Wizard's Chess, like, when you look at the board layout and how it works, it, it is possible to make it make sense, but the moves that Ron uses, like, a lot of the moves don't correspond to... Um, what's on the board in the shots and also some of the things that show so it's just aren't even squares on the board on, on a board of chess <laughs> so they just don't make sense um so yeah it's like i think there's some letters that he shows out that aren't in a chess board so they just don't work something along those lines um and there is no scenario in which even a computer player would ever take the opportunity for a bishop to take the knight and therefore open yourself up to the king being taken you would never, ever, ever do that. Yeah, so, but obviously, like, that's purely there for illustration and for drama effects, so you can sort Yeah, of I, I don't really care about that kind of stuff. I feel like... No, this is a bit it, fun. It brings the game of chess to the end in in a an amount of time that makes me think, ah, yes, they are heading towards a conclusion. Yeah. And, like, speaking of the conclusion, I think what the film does quite well, even as someone who knows exactly every beat of this film, that as a first-time viewer... I think they do quite a good job of making Snape an obvious villain figure, but without yep. making it so obvious that it's clearly a red herring. Oh yeah, because... you have like you have no doubt that it's Snape. Like you just have absolutely zero doubt. It's definitely Snape. Unless you read the book. Yeah, but you're still like yeah, but if you don't, uh, it just yeah. like, they like pre- yeah, you're right. They pitch it perfectly only... where it's like obviously Snape. Yeah. I mean, you meet Professor Quirrell in the bar, and then there's like that little moment where Harry goes to shake his hand, and he's like, "Oh no!" And obviously, you won't make the connection. You just think he's really skittish and nervous. And well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I mentioned this to Andy before. At this point, Voldemort doesn't know that if he touches Harry, his skin will burn because Voldemort isn't aware of the curse that protects Harry. He thinks the whole curse bouncing off him was just sort of a fluke that happened. Well, he doesn't know what happened. So, so you well, can... yeah, he doesn't even actually know how he died or what killed him and Harry killed him. Uh, when um, Voldemort was destroyed. At this point, Voldemort only learns about what happens when he touches Harry when Quirrell goes to touch Harry at the end of the film. So the whole him shaking hand thing, not shaking Harry's hand thing, seems clever because it's like, oh yeah, Voldemort can't touch Harry otherwise he'll burn. But Voldemort and Quirrell don't actually know that yet. Well, I think, no, well, I would just think it's like... I, I was yeah. looking for this. In, in the last scene, well, in the sort of like the showdown scene, Quirrell doesn't start to burn until Harry touches him. So, like, Quirrell has his hand round Harry's throat, 
but he, his skin doesn't start burning and crumbling. His skin only starts burning and crumbling when Harry grabs hold of Quirrell's wrist to pull him off. Even if you don't know what'll happen, I think Voldemort's probably superstitious enough about Harry. Like, he doesn't know why Harry was able to kill him. He'd just be like, no, don't touch that kid. We don't know, like, what's going to happen if we touch that kid. Like, I think that's fair enough. <laughs> I think they, um, I think the film does a really good job of keeping Quirrell out of the way long enough, but just kind of leaving him in little scenes every now and again, where it's like, you know, you meet him in the bar for a couple of seconds, you see him at the Quidditch game, but you don't focus on him. You Great I mean, bit of background stuff, by the way, is that you can see Quirrell doing the curse in the background. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, good, good repeated viewing uh, stuff there. But, and yeah. then, like, he's only really properly, properly introduced into the film with the troll in the dungeon bit. And even then he's barely in it because he collapses. And Thought you ought to know. Thought you ought to know. But, um... very, very interesting bit of casting with Quirrell. He's played by a guy called Ian Hart who is not well known, really. Um, he's a very, very thick Scouser, like Steven Gerrard level accent. And he's not that in this film. And do you know he also plays Voldemort as well? Like, he yeah, does in this film. Yeah. It's just a strange bit of casting, but he, I think he's good. I think he's, I think he's quite funny as Quirrell, especially when he's imitating himself and he goes, who poor, would have blamed p- 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 poor stuttering Professor Quirrell? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I think. Um, I mean, this is all kind of tied in with the um, my favourite aspects of this film, where I think the mirror of Erised stuff is when the film really starts to get to grips, gets to grips with the fact that Harry is an orphan and what it means to be an orphan, or what you know you can presume it means to be an orphan. I imagine it means lots of very complex things to be an orphan that we'll never understand. But in terms of stuff that people can understand on a simple level, in terms of what it's like so that it translates um, visually and for entertainment and stuff. Um, I think the scenes with the mirror of Erised are really kind of tranquil and kind of beautiful. Um, and especially the scenes with uh, Dumbledore and the mirror of Erised, like where he explains to Harry that it's going to somewhere new. Um, at, like, at the end of the film, where he's saying, like, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's only a, a true... I mean... This film is so interested in world building that it forgets about building character, but there are moments in it where I feel like Harry, um, it really, it fleshes him out as someone who will do anything for the greater good, and like even in his truest nature, even the mirror of Erised, which could expose somebody's um, greatest desires to be really selfish, like even with Ron, where he's like, oh, I'm head boy and I'm holding the Quidditch Cup, like this is my dream, whereas... Harry's dream is just to have parents and then his dream with the Philosopher's Stone was to have it but not use it it was to have it so that Voldemort wouldn't come back and stuff and you know he's very it's, and even like you know he, he will rush into potential potentially deathly scenarios to save his friends and things like that and he'll even it, pretend that he's shaking hands with Dumbledore he's won the house cup <laughs> <laughs> and I think, yeah, the, the Mirror of Erised stuff is uh, my favourite little bits of the film. I think that they're the bits that I really want to be slow and still and quiet. And I'm tempted to go and read the Mirror of Erised scenes in the, the books and everything like that. Uh, just because you said that they're a bit more stretched out. and Yeah, well, they, the, the, they the, the, best, of it. the best lines from those scenes are in the film. Like The, the, the absolute standout line possibly of the film is when Dumbledore says yeah. it, it, does not, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Mm. That's a great line. But probably the most interesting character detail about Dumbledore is not in the film, where uh, Harry asks Dumbledore what 
he what he sees in the mirror and Dumbledore is like visibly shocked and like Harry remarks on it as like he knows it's the only time in his whole life that Dumbledore lies to him where he says he sees himself holding a pair of socks because mm. nobody buys him socks for Christmas and it's just a great little character detail that like Harry knows that that he really caught Dumbledore off guard and asked him a question he wasn't willing to answer. Lovely little detail that for future books. Um, I wonder what he, yeah. I mean is it ever revealed what he maybe saw? Or? Yes, it's in oh, Fantastic it? Beasts 2 because we can't have mysteries anymore. He sees himself making out with Johnny Depp. That's what he sees. Oh, right. Oh, so the, the Fantastic Beasts films have kind of retroactively... Well, to be fair, that's in the Fantastic Beasts films. I mean, things have changed, well, might have changed since then. Maybe he sees his sister or maybe he sees his family. Like, yeah, I think, I think he probably sees his sister alive. You know, when Grindelwald's been put in prison yeah. and stuff, he probably yeah. thinks things are a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's one of the great, great things that the... The books mainly do, but in this film in particular, mainly because I just think Richard Harris is like perfect casting for Dumbledore. Um, not that Michael Gambon isn't good, but he's more—he he is more the uh, "Bar do you want some brownies before you go to bed?" kind of Dumbledore. Michael um, Gambon is playing a different character. Yeah, than Dumbledore. he is. Yeah, yeah. He's a different kind of Dumbledore entirely. Like Richard Harris captures like the mysterious, like optimistic jolliness, like sort of like a cross between. Um, Jesus, Santa Claus, and some <laughs> old grandpa. Well, that's the, I, like, I, I always imagine Father Christmas as Dumbledore. Like, I always thought that's what Father Christmas is like, is Dumbledore. Yeah, yeah. Mm. like, he's just such, such, so good in this role. And to be fair, Dumbledore's character is just one of the most intriguing characters in the literature anyway, because he's so mysterious, and we end up knowing so little about him, yet at the same time we feel like we know him so well as we're going through these books and films. So, mm. um... He's he's phenomenal. It's so sad that we never got to see Richard Harris handle the heavy material in like Half Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows. It's so sad that we never got to see him. Or even some stuff. of the heavy material that's from the book in this film. Yeah, yeah. It's it's such a shame that they they had the perfect Dumbledore and they had him for such a short time frame. It's very sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd just like to add as well, considering this film was made in two thousand and one. The green screen and visual stuff is is quite good. Oh, like, not, I, not the Quidditch. Do you think? Do you think? Like, Rob, really? Yeah, I, I don't think it... I mean, obviously, it looks very 2001, but for things that look very 2001, this doesn't look too bad. Like, you know, the, the, there's definitely worse green screen, green, screen, green screen stuff in later films with more money and better technology and... It's, it's not, it's this not is... amazing, but like it, it didn't jump out at me that badly. Um, this, I don't know. I think it. I know it came out a long time ago, but not that long ago. This film came out three weeks before Fellowship of the Ring. It came out two mm. years after yeah. The Phantom Menace. It's pretty, pretty bad. I think. Well, I think <laughs> they stick mainly to practical effects for a lot of the magic stuff and for a lot of the like world building and cool stuff that you see. A lot of it is real and it's filmed and it looks really cool. And I think a lot of the simple magic effects, like the food appearing, some of the spells, like a lot of the simple stuff, because it's done simply, comes across really well and adds to the rustic charm that the film sort of has and, you know, the sort of like medieval feel that it has as well, especially with all the lighting and stuff like that. But there are bits like the Quidditch, just it just looks like a green screen and you can see like Harry um, Daniel Radcliffe sat on a broomstick in front of his green screen, move into the left and the right. Like, have you ever been to Harry Potter World, Rob? No. There's a bit where you get to line up 
um, sit on a Quidditch broom and do a flying scene yourself, and it looks exactly the same. Yeah, it's the same, exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> and once you've done that, you sit when you watch the characters flying in Quidditch, and you know how it's done, and you know how it looks when it's not being done right. It makes perfect sense, and you can't get it out of your head. So Quidditch looks awful. But to the film's credit, I think Quidditch looks awful in every Harry Potter film. Like even <laughs> later on, they still have this effect of it looking like characters are just sat on static brooms, rocking to the left and right while the, while the world moves around them. Exactly. I think flying in general, they, yeah, they just never get it right. Yeah. They just never ever get unless it right. it's flying far away, where you don't have to put that much effort into CGI. Um, it, it yeah, it just it looks pretty dreadful. Yeah. Um, so, do any of us have anything more to say about this? I think we should we because it's such an enormous cast. We haven't done our favorite character or or maybe standout actor or anything like that. Uh, well, who, who would we all pick? Hermione is my favorite character, and Robbie Coltrane is my favorite actor. I mean, is that for this film? For this film, yeah. Because I mean, for the whole for the whole series, Hermione is my favorite character. For this film, I think. I mean, I should Hagrid. she's my favourite. Hagrid in is probably my favourite character. I think he's the heart of this. Hagrid, yeah. I think he's what <coughs> really sells it. Like, he, he is the guy who has to sell us the fact that magic exists and that there are wizards, and he does it really well, I think. I would say Dumbledore, because I just think he's the best version of Dumbledore in the film. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Like, he doesn't have a, as much of an active role in Chamber of Secrets, from what I recall, as he does in this film, um, which is... I, I don't know, I think it's about the same. Um... I, it, yeah, it, Plus, it's I've such got, a shame. I've got to pick Dumbledore for either this or Chamber of Secrets because he's yeah. only in these two films until Michael Gambon rolls on along and does his thing. Um, so, um, but what is it? How did you put your name in a goblet of fire? <laughs> he asked calmly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, honorable mention to Alan Rickman as Snape. Um, yeah, super cap. The the, uh, the the po- the potions scene is just oh incredible, my God. iconic, Mister. Potter, our, our new, new celebrity. celebrity. So if we ever need to make a podcast longer, we can all just do it as Alan Brickman. <laughs> and I just, I, I love that. I, 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 probably the least surprising story I've ever heard, because I always thought this was the case, which was that um, J.K. Rowland pulled Alan Rickman aside just before filming started and told him the whole backstory with Lily. And he was the one and only person in the whole world who knew the backstory with Lily. Um, and you can just tell, like when he first sees Harry in the Great Hall, and he gives him a look of like, "Oh my God, it's Lily's son!" Like he just the way he just looks at him, and like there's no dialogue, and the way he treats him in that potion scene, you just know that like, and you just totally. But like when you watch these with the knowledge of Snape's backstory, it just like it's so on point right from the start. I, I was looking for job. signs. I was I was looking for signs, and there are actually signs. It's mad. I can't believe that. Like I genuinely thought that like this was a. A, a, like a, in the fifth film or the sixth film, we might start seeing signs that Snape, um, you know, and about the Lily stuff and everything. But you can kind of tell that Snape is trying so hard to not see Harry as James, but he can't. And he can't look him in the eye because when he looks him in the eye, he sees Lily. Sees Lily, and it's like, oh god. And yeah, that it's it's great that there are. Do you know that's one thing that. This film stands up so much better as part of a greater whole than it does by itself, and I think oh, yeah, that's really, a, that, I think totally. I think that's a, I think that's a testament to how, even at the very beginning of this story, they were still forming connections with the very. I mean, obviously, you know, they always say the clue to the ending is in the beginning. Yeah, and 
there are just little clues here because it's kind of it, it's kind of mentioned that Voldemort couldn't kill Harry because of love, but that's kind of like a vague, wishy-washy, oh, a nice message to take home kind of thing that love conquers all or whatever. But there's just enough hint of intrigue that there's clearly something missing in this. It's yeah. not, there's, a, there's a piece of information that's not been revealed yet, and obviously it turns out it's the prophecy, because, like, you know... There's a lot of explanation for why Voldemort couldn't kill Harry, but there's not any explanation for why Voldemort would want to kill Harry. Yeah. yeah. In this, there's no motivation with Voldemort, whereas it yeah. that gets more and more and more developed as it goes on, and you know that there's something missing. And obviously, the motivation is the prophecy. You know, like Voldemort's scared because like he thinks that a boy born at the end of July will come and kill him because neither can live while the other survives and all that. Mm-hmm. But. And and obviously like there's the whole thing. Obviously there's the I don't know where it's never mentioned in the films, is it? That Neville and Harry have the same birthday and yeah, that's ne- that's never mentioned yeah. in the films. And um, that's a detail that I feel is sadly lost from the films. That Neville yeah. is is the, Neville. is is the is the Harry that we never was. Yeah, yeah, poor Neville. But no, yeah. I think that as part of a as part of a wider universe, I think this works much better as the first step into a massive world and a big story. Um, so I think it, a lot of its problems, it gets away with that. I think on its own, I'm just going to grade now on its own. I think this is like a five out of 10 kind of film, but with all of the context and with it being the first step into a universe that is incomprehensibly massive with so many big people and so so a big cast of characters and so many people, I think this is a, a very kind of solid firm six for me. I think that's very harsh. I mean, that's very harsh. I think, considering like how much of the legwork of the whole Harry Potter series is done in this film so effortlessly, so much of the casting, all of the musical themes, all of the character designs, all of the designs of the sets, everything is set into motion in this film. And it feels I think so cohesive. It feels yeah, it's, it feels so cohesive. Like there's not. I don't think really there's many moments wasted. I think everything works. I think. It's hard not to give it a 10, to be honest, because everything is so right. But purely because it's not a film that's made for me and I don't find it very accessible these days, I'd give it an 8. But I think in terms of how well it's made and in terms of the impact it has and how imaginative it is, I think it's like an extraordinary achievement, this film. Yeah. Cool. Um, first off, can I just say... Very quickly to go back to my favourite character, Dumbledore. I want to give a shout out to my main man, Dumbledore, for rigging the host point election at the end of the film. <laughs> <laughs> that is shameless. Yeah. Ten points go to Neville Longbottom because I like him and I, I love, love Gryffindor to win. I love this idea that he hadn't done the maths properly. And so when he does it, someone whispers like, no, not quite. And so he has to be like, oh, um, one point to Pavati Patil. Because you've got really nice hair, Pavati. <laughs> or like 23 points to Oliver Wood for just being great. <laughs> then in the same vein, Harry literally saves the school from Lord Voldemort. Why doesn't he just get like a thousand points on the spot? Yeah, it's but, all yeah. or nothing really, isn't it? Like, yeah. <laughs> you saved us from like wizard well, Hitler. I think I think with Dumbledore, what, he's always, what Dumbledore's always tried to do is show Harry a bit of humility and protect him from the fame that he will inevitably yeah. have so to do. So then don't give him any stage. points! <laughs> but I think, you know, kind of say, oh, you know, outstanding bravery, well done, Harry, not you literally saved us from a dark wizard here's the house forever there's the bigger points in justice in the film which is that um, 
when they get caught out at night, they lose 50 points each. They take down a troll and they get five points. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the House Cup stuff really makes me laugh because it's so important in this. And yet, like, in, in future films, there's, like, one cursory mention of, like, Five points from Griffin. And the, really... rule, the rules that they break in future films, it's like, you flew to the ministry and took down the government. <laughs> Five points from Gryffindor. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the film, the um, the whole points thing is still really important <coughs> in the books, uh, the, uh, like, as you go on, up until, like, the fifth and sixth book. The points are still really important and they still really want to win. Um, but, yeah, they do really make a point of... Um, and again, in the Harry Potter saw, they make a real point of taking you to... Those um, vases that they've made for the Great Hall, where all the points are kept in, like sand. Um, oh god, yeah, I remember those from the games, the PS One games. Yeah, yeah, well, they're exactly the same in the game as they are in the film, as they actually made them, and they make a point of showing them them. And it's like they're only ever really used in that film, and they do make appearances in the other films, but only as sort of like cameos. And then in other films, where like the Great Hall just changes completely, um, obviously mm. they're sort of discarded, which is like. Um, sort of swiftly segueing into my own critique here, what I really like about the first two Harry Potter films is that they set a tone and they set a language for Harry Potter in terms of musical language, a visual language, to some extent a storytelling language, but to less of an extent the storytelling language. Just like an air of mystery and a sort of aura around it that really seems to encapsulate the books really well. Um, and while I think Christopher Columbus has a lot of flaws which are going to appear more in film two, because I think you, can, you can't forgive them as much in film two as you can in forgive one, because film uh, film one, because film one is such a trendsetter. It's sort of a shame that you lose that when the other directors become included in the films, particularly David Yates, who gets like, what, four, four of the... He gets four films, four, yeah. Four yeah. of the seven films, who has a particular language for the film that I just don't think fits as well as the language of the first two films do. I don't think David Yates gets Harry Potter, full stop. I, I really... Oh, I'm ready to have a rant about David like, Yates when that comes around. I, like, <laughs> in some respects, I'm really glad that you get to experiment with different directors because you get films like Film 3, which are really unique and really cool and have a really interesting language that I wouldn't necessarily say fit with a book, but on their own, hold up as a really cool experiment. But in terms of trueness to the books and how the books feel... This film, and to some extent Chamber of Secrets, because it basically does the same thing, are like almost spot on in terms of atmosphere and what the film feels like. A lot of that is down to John Williams and the way he does the music and the colour green of the film and how the film looks. So I have to give the film, like this film, a lot of credit for being the one that feels most like a Harry Potter film. Yeah. Because it is just the one that feels most like a Harry Potter film and the one that feels as if it is closest to the books. One, in a sense, because it is literally the closest to the books in that it just pulls a line straight out of the book, sticks them on the page, pulls whole scenes out and just sticks them on the page. Yeah. Like There are bits in this film you can watch and you can you, you watch a scene from start to end and you think, that was literally a chapter in the book. Like, it just was. There wasn't anything in that um, chapter. The Mirror that... of said is the clearest example, I think, in that. Or Norbert. Yeah. The whole Norbert stuff. Yeah. yeah. You watch the film and you think, this is literally, I'm watching the book player in television form here, but um, I don't have the benefit of getting to imagine it myself. So that works in both the film's favour and also against the film a little bit. But I still have to give the film a really good score, despite it sticking closely, too closely to the book, um, to its detriment. Because it just... 
it is Harry Potter and it feels so Harry Potter. And so many of the characters are just so good in this and so well cast. So I'll probably have to give it about an eight as well. Cool. The last thing, the last thing I want to mention before we wrap up is that I, I know we, you briefly mentioned it, Rob, but I can't let <laughs> this pass without having more conversation about John Williams's score. It's, I mean, I, I am like an absolutely obsessive fan of John Williams. I've listened to almost every score he's ever written. This is so out of character for John Williams. Like, this is just. I mean, not so Except much when now. The Star Wars themes plays. Not so much now, but yeah. Well, yeah. There's a bit where he plays the Star Wars theme for a laugh. But um, at the time... Oh, this I noticed is... that. Yeah, 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 he likes to do it. He, there's a bit in Revenge of the Sith where he plays the Harry Potter theme. He, he gets uh, he changes it around. But this is so out of character for John Williams. And what's really interesting is that the one score that he's done in the past, which really does sound like Harry Potter, is Home Alone, which is the one film that he's done with Chris Columbus before this. Mm. So there's an obvious like decision being made there, but I think That's this is... That's probably why this one feels the most like a Christmas film than any other. It could be that, it could be that. But also I just think John Williams just gets that this needs to have a kind of specifically kind of intangibly spooky magical kind of atmosphere to it where it has the dark side of magic as well as the light side of magic where like it's not it's not magic in the sense of disney but it's also not magic in the sense of like macbeth like it's it's yeah. it's you kind of get both sides of the same coin this is a dangerous world but it's an exciting world and i think his music sums that up absolutely perfectly cool. um and it's yeah, it's totally one of his agree. one of his greatest scores this and it oh, deserves absolutely. all the praise that absolutely. it gets completely agree yeah, I think the the music is a large part responsible for how this film feels like how this film feels, and in translation, how the books end up feeling later on. Like the air of mystique that the um, score gives to this film carries itself on into the books later on. I know, and it's 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 crazy that despite how fantastically good his score is for this, it's not even his best Harry Potter score, let alone his best score. Full stop. It's crazy. We yeah. Uh... We await to see his best Harry Potter score. It's Prisoner of Azkaban. I'll tell it, you that. It is Prisoner By of Azkaban. By process of... He only did three. And Chamber yeah. of Secrets is basically a repeat of this one because he had no time. Prisoner of Azkaban is phenomenally good to score. Yeah. Um, well, I can't wait to hear it um, again because I've also seen that film a million times. But yeah. um, anyway, we will be back at some point in the near future with a discussion of the Chamber of Secrets. Do we have a guest for that episode? Is that Tony's episode? Yes, Tony is joining us. She, ah, uh, you, you will recognise her from. You may remember her from such <laughs> from such <laughs> podcasts as Monsters Inc. and Monsters University. Excellent, wonderful. Well, it's been lovely speaking to you both about this. I can't wait to crack through the uh, crack through the rest of them. Yeah, only seven films this time. I know we are one eighth of the way there. Oh, eight, sorry, films. eight films eight this films. time. I always forget that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have them all out of the way by Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. It's like, it's like a third of what we did for Pixar. To be fair, in terms of running time, after we've done Chamber of Secrets, we're probably about halfway through. <laughs> oh, God, Chamber <laughs> of Secrets. That is a long film. Ten oh, minutes wow. shorter than Endgame. Crazy. Yeah. Anyway, um, we'll see you for it. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Ciao.